Good morning. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. The purpose of this first panel is to set the stage for our discussions today. My colleague, Jose Piñera, who successfully reformed the public pension system in Chile uh, three decades ago in a model that has been exported to dozens of countries, uh, though not yet to most of the industrialized world, often observes that when you destroy the link between personal effort and reward, that is, between personal responsibility and personal rights, and you do so on a massive scale for a long period of time, the result is disaster. And that is exactly what the welfare state is delivering in Europe today and what I think we'll be seeing more of in the United States as well. The crisis takes many forms. It pits generations against each other. It encourages politicians to make uh, promises that cannot be kept and otherwise uh, behave irresponsibly. It undermines more effective initiatives by civil society to help the unfortunate. And it turns too many people's behavior toward dependency and rent-seeking instead of productive activity. Political scientists can argue about all of those things, but what you cannot argue with is the math. And what we know for sure is that the welfare state in industrialized uh, countries is simply unsustainable and that they have, they have contributed greatly to the crises we are seeing in Europe and also in the United States today. This panel is about the unaffordable welfare state. The speakers are going to be looking at debt created by that, that uh, system, uh, including unfunded liabilities, uh, the size of which uh, dwarf the public debt figures that you usually hear about. At a time when this uh, outdated Bismarckian model is so thoroughly failing in Europe, it is odd that the United States should, ch should choose to begin the 21st century uh, heading more rapidly in that direction. So let's hear now from our speakers about the many reasons why that is so. Our first speaker is Jagadish Gokali. He is a Cato Senior Fellow, an expert on entitlement reform, labor productivity, and U.S. fiscal policy. He has been a consultant to the U.S. Department of the Treasury, a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, an economic advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. He has published in the leading uh, peer-reviewed economic journals and has attracted considerable attention with a recent paper on the increase in sovereign default risk among uh, Eurozone nations. If I could sum up uh, his message, it would be something like, things are worse than you think. Please help me welcome Jagadish. Thanks, Ian. Uh, welcome to all of you to Cato. Um, so I feel the previous keynote speak speech was so good. It covered a broad range of topics. And uh, I'm just going to put a little more flesh on the skeleton that, was, that has already been developed. So I'm going to give you some ideas both. And the discussion has to be both short term and long term, because we are in a recession right now. And we need to emerge from the recession before we get a sense of where things are headed. It's not clear how long it'll take for us to emerge from the recession. So it's a very complex and convoluted set of issues that uh, we need to discuss for both Europe and the United States. So uh, social protection expenditures is what I'm going to focus on. Uh, these include health, housing and welfare, 
and uh, social security as we call it social security, that is old age, disability, and survivor's uh, protection. And as you can see, the first three charts, uh, the orange and dark blue columns here, suggest that the United States state spends much more of its social protection dollars on healthcare, and Europeans spend much more of their social protection dollars on uh, social security, with roughly the same amount being spent. U.S. is slightly more on housing and welfare. Uh, by the way, Medicaid is included in health here. So for the U.S., that's part of the reason why the U.S. Uh, uh, government social protection spending on health is much higher. However, the U.S. doesn't spend nearly as much on social protection as a whole. If you look at social protection spending in total government spending, the U.S. share is much smaller. And another reason uh, for lower social protection in, uh, uh, in the U.S. is that the share of government spending in total uh, GDP is also smaller. So all of that adds up to U.S. social protection spending being about half as large in total GDP compared to, to Europe. U.S. Uh, spends about 15% of GDP on social protection, uh, and it's, it's, it's increased as a result of the recession. 2009 is uh, much higher uh, than uh, 2006, uh, that is pre-recession. And that's happened across the country. So this chart shows some of the major European countries, EU 27 countries, and the U.S. Uh, so social protection in the U.S is much smaller, on a much smaller scale than, in, the, than in, in, in Europe. Why might that be? Well, the U.S. spends much more on defense and much less on social, uh, exactly the opposite. Europe spends much less on defense and much more. So one reasonable inference might be the U.S. defense dollars support or enable, although not necessarily cause, higher European social welfare expenditures. And so, you know, if there is some moral hazard effect of that, maybe that's something worth thinking about, but then you need to think about if the U.S. spends less on social protection and Europe spends more, why, what's facilitating that? And I think this is something that's not really talked about, but uh, uh, there's a good case to be made that in some sense uh, we, are, we are specializing in defense services and that enables Europe to spend more on uh, social uh, insurance and of course the European case uh, in this current episode of the recession is uh, uh, much different. It's entwined with the attempt to unify the currency system and so on. So it's a slightly different set of motivations why we ended up with, in the current recession. But long term, that made the, the secular trend towards more social protection spending in Europe may have been facilitated by the patterns of uh, specialization and different public services between Europe and the US. So what about economic prospects for the future? Well, one thing to think about, that's the same thing as asking what are the, what's going to happen to key, two key sources that promote economic growth. It's population and productivity. Those are the two fundamental forces that you need to think about. And then each of those is in turn uh, dependent on or conditional upon sub-factors, immigration, fertility, mortality, that determine population structure, age structure in particular. Uh, and that's kind of baked into the cake for, for uh, both Europe and the US. And productivity factors, productive factors, their utilization levels, how efficient they are, human and physical capital accumulation, technolo technological growth. Gordon has a very interesting paper about you know, comparing uh, the developments, uh, early, earlier types of technological progress to current types of technological progress. And he concludes that future growth rates, because of the types of technology that 
that can be invented, and once they are invented, there's only a one-time effect of uh, uh, efficiency augmenting effect of those technologies that future technological progress will be of the type that will not augment growth to uh, the same extent as uh, earlier technological progress. And that's a paper that's uh, getting increasing attention, and that's important. So the demographic structure is baked in, as I said. So the question now is, what is going to be the direction of causality here? As policy advisors and policy makers, we have to think about this. Uh, is it going to be from demographics to higher entitlement spending to high consumption and therefore uh, slower growth? Or are we going to meet the challenge of inducing more work incentives to promote faster growth so that we can accommodate the needs for greater social protection given what's baked into the demographics? That's the challenge for policymakers and policy advisors. So let's look at a few of the factors. I'm, I can't, don't have time to go through all of them. One is employment rates. Uh, the two dark shaded charts are EU and the US, and then the same selected countries in Europe. Now, Prescott had an article in the early 2000s uh, relating the relatively lower share of labor utilization in Europe relative to the United States to higher taxes in Europe relative to the United States. That doesn't seem to have been sustained because by the uh, middle of the 2000s, uh, employment rates in the U.S. Uh, in in Europe caught up to the same level of, as as the U.S. as these data show. Post recession, of course, both of them have declined. The employment rates are both, and some countries, especially those we know about, Spain, Greece, and Ireland, and others, have experienced a considerable decline in employment rates, which is uh, labor force utilization. Uh, the fact that Europe is caught up is somewhat deceptive because the share of part-time work in, in Europe is still higher than that in the US. So, but nevertheless, there has been a catch-up before the recession. After the recession, uh, uh, both, both countries' labor utilization has declined. Uh, output per person kind of a stand-in for productivity growth. Again, I really looked at, uh, you know, when I was preparing for this presentation, I said, well, let's look at labor utilization and productivity as the two key underlying forces that will determine, that seem to be important uh, to carry them forward and see if we can project them and see what happens. But I really don't know what to make of this chart for the simple reason that, you know, the growth in productivity. So these charts show Europe uh, in the top uh, left-hand corner, and then everything relative to Europe. EU27. So the blue line is the same in each chart, and that particular countries or US uh, line is superimposed. So you can see all the countries that have experienced the deepest recessions. Greece, the data is not quite available yet, but Spain and Ireland, for example, have uh, experienced much higher productivity growth. One could argue that's because businesses in, this, in these economies facing a recession and lack of demand are now spurred to make their operations and factory utilization much more efficient. And that's what's causing this. Another, another interpretation is that they've just laid off the least efficient workers, which is why unemployment is so high. And therefore, the output per person that we measure is now much higher than the, than the norm for all of the European countries. So in, your, in the US, the same phenomenon is relative to Europe, US labor productivity, uh, output per person at least, uh, has increased quite considerably. And uh, it's not clear uh, uh, what's gonna, how, how things will move, move in the future. 
the challenge is to uh, get, maintain these productivity levels, but yet bring back those folks who are now unemployed, retrain them, bring them back so that uh, we can have full employment, have faster output growth overall if we can maintain these productivity rates. That's the real challenge. What about the long term? Well, as I said, the demographics is baked into the cake. And these are population profiles for four uh, periods. 2010 is the black line. 2040 is the red line. Uh, the other two lines are intermediate. And you can see the aging, uh, these data from Eurostat. And you can see the aging, uh, 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 prospective aging of the population that will happen in the future. And that puts pressure on uh, demands for social protection uh, together with the structure of the social protection programs that we have in place, uh, expenditures on social protection in both U US and Europe are project would be projected to increase considerably. They're already quite high, especially in Europe. But uh, I haven't shown the US over here yet because I have a whole slew of charts for US that I will show if I have time. But uh, it looks pretty similar uh, to the charts for Europe. Um, uh, so that, you can see that it's not just the fact that the baby boomers are aging, it's also the fact that the proportion of young individuals is declining, uh, relatively speaking. So it's, again, the uh, earlier speaker mentioned about fertility rates being lower in Europe. Uh, it's not true in all countries. For example, the middle panel of uh, charts, Ireland, France, and the UK, fertility rates have held up. Not quite up to replacement rates, but fairly close. So you can see the young, uh, the share of the young, that's the red line for 2040, is actually above the black line, which suggests uh, healthy fertility rates, even though the baby boomers' retirement will put pressure on additional social protection spending in these countries. Again, fertility rates here. As I said, UK, France, and Ireland seem to have higher fertility. For the US, fertility rates are fairly close to replacement, if not quite at replacement rates. But again, immigration will, uh, uh, which is not as large relative to the total population in the US, will uh, mean that the US population continues to grow, although at a very slow rate. Something like 0.3 or 0.4 is the total uh, uh, population growth rate. EU, at 1.5, is considerably below. Uh, so the prospects there, uh, given that secularly fertility rates uh, are not, uh, uh, it's not easy to figure out what determines fertility. I mean, there are some papers, Michelle Boldrin from Minnesota has a paper about correlating uh, the generosity of social protection expenditures and so the uh, generosity of social insurance programs in various European and, uh, countries and the US with the relative decline or rates of decline in fertility in these countries. And he finds that the relatively more generous uh, social insurance programs are correlated with a faster decline in fertility. What you make of that correlation, I don't know, but it's there. And so it's not clear that given the more generous social insurance systems in Europe, whether fertility rates they seem to be on an upward trend, whether that will be sustained or not is not clear. Nobody that I know anticipates a return to replacement rates anytime soon. This shows the uh, explicit debt as a percent of GDP. This is up to the 2011. And obviously, the upturn in explicit debt 
uh, as a percent of GDP here is the result of uh, the recession. But this is explicit debt, and debt as a measure is a backward-looking measure. It's the result of what happened in the past. What we need is to look at the future, what's going to happen in the future. And so you can look at the, uh, we can project, use the projected population, uh, which is demographic change that's baked into uh, uh, various populations in the US and Europe, and uh, look at the impact of that with current social insurance policies, social protection policies, and look at what the shortfall will be uh, going into the future, assuming that those policies are kept in place, just to create a measure of how large those shortfalls will be. And I come up with this type of a result, where the explicit debt, which is mostly what people talk about when they talk about debt levels, is the short green columns over there. Uh, uh, but the uh, implicit debt, which is the present value of future shortfalls, for these various countries in Europe and in the US is much, much higher. And I did, I did this kind of a calculation. This calculation is as of the mid-2000s. Now, I cannot do the same calculation right now because the data uh, is kind of contaminated by the, by the recession that's going on. So I cannot project current data with just the same level of confidence into the future on budget structures, uh, budget expenditures, and revenues because of the peculiar economic situation that obtains today. But uh, I don't anticipate that these implicit debts will be any smaller if I did the experiment today. So these debt levels are very massive. The numbers, uh, something like 8% of GDP, which is the average here, is deceptively small. If you think of the major policy initiatives ever undertaken in the US or in Europe, even World War II, all the expenditure that was uh, made in World War II by the US doesn't come close to 8% of GDP, of the present value of GDP. So uh, these numbers are deceptively, deceptively uh, small. So in conclusion, I think the idea that demographics seems to be fiscal destiny uh, is throwing up a big challenge for us in terms of policy. Consider the one possible policy reform, which is supposed to be thought about reducing entitlement spending and using the savings to fund something like a five or 10 year tax credit to those who acquire education and employ their human capital in the US. Would this policy be, is it implementable today? Uh, the earlier speaker mentioned about forming coalitions to get any policy through. And given the demographic uh, uh, structure that's baked into our projections, getting a coalition to pass this type of a policy seems to be uh, rather difficult. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jagadish. Greece, of course, has be become the poster child of everything that's wrong. Uh, with a dysfunctional uh, political system in Europe. Our next speaker is a Greek uh, legal scholar and attorney, Aristides Hatsis. Uh, he has studied uh, sociology and philosophy and history and law at the Aristotle University at Thess Thessaloniki. 
and also at the graduate level there and at the University of Chicago Law School, receiving his doctorate in economics of contract law. He is a member of the Thessaloniki Bar Association and the American Bar Association. He's a member of the steering committee of the European Association of Law and Economics, a member of the advisory board of the Society of European Contract Law, and, and he's on the editorial board of the European Review of Contract Law. Please help me welcome him. Good morning. Uh, first of all, I'd like to, th to thank uh, again the Institute and especially uh, the people who, you know, who have invited me here, Michael Tanner. Uh, it's always a pleasure to spend some time in Washington, especially if the alternative was to be to stay in Athens, demonstrating against <laughs> Miss Merkel. Um, <clears throat> Side one side. Today I'm going to speak to you about Greece. Um, the interesting story about Greece is that Greece is a textbook example of any government failure in the book. Of course, Greeks do not have a monopoly in uh, phenomena like uh, corruption or uh, tax evasion, or there is always Italy, or, um, <laughs> uh, or powerful uh, uh, public sector unions. There is always Wisconsin. However, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not saying that uh, the Greek crisis is uh, only um, the, uh, the fault of uh, Greek people, of course. Uh, there is uh, this, uh, it is a, a, a European problem due to the, the transfers of funds from north to the south. Uh, it is, of course, a European, a Euro problem related to, to the lack of competitiveness after the introduction of the Euro. And, of course, it's most of all a moral hazard problem uh, by the, uh, created by the irresponsible lending by uh, mostly uh, northern European banks. Uh, with the, of course, with the encouragement of governments. Having said that, I'd like to emphasize that uh, Greece is a very unique case. Uh, it's a, a, a showcase of everything uh, problematic that has to do with government uh, today. Uh, people outside of Greece uh, cannot realize how uh, awful the, the situation is. So today I'm going to I don't know how much time I have, 15 minutes, 15, 20, okay. How much time I have, I'm going to show you a lot of numbers, but don't worry because these numbers are so hideous, are so uh, uh, illustrative and ugly that uh, you're not going to find them boring. Um, <laughs> for me, first of all, uh, uh, welfare state is, is, is a quite good idea. Uh, as long as uh, welfare state, um, serves uh, the purpose of providing a safety net for people in need, that is, for poor people, people out of job temporarily, for old people, for uh, children, uh, for people who, uh, for disabilities. However, the, the Greek version of the welfare state, it's, uh, the welfare state in the broadest sense, it's not uh, a welfare state in the narrow sense of the word, 
even an idealized, not idealized, a real world kind of welfare state, but it's a state made for the welfare of politically powerful pressure groups, as we're going to see. Uh, we're going to see, uh, I'm going to show you that uh, the Greek welfare state is a spending machine. We might be the best spenders in the world. The Greek welfare state is a, is a huge spending machine. And this, is, this was the reason for a Greek crisis, for the current Greek crisis, as we're going to see. However, Greece was not a black ship always. Uh, actually, uh, this is a table that I, I got, I uh, scanned from uh, the first economics textbook that I have read, um, written by Roger Leroy Miller. I don't know if you are familiar with his name. It was an excellent economics textbook published in 1982. In the chapter on the economic growth, I saw this table when I read the book in the early 90s. According to this table, was, Greece was not only a success story, was the success story from 1929-1980. A period that was easy for Greek people. It was a very anomalous period with dictatorships, with uh, wars, with civil wars. Actually, uh, I'd like to, to make a correction. Greece was devastated during World War II. It was second after Soviet Union in human and uh, material uh, casualties. So, during, however, during this uh, period, Greece managed to, to be the success story in the whole world. So. The question is, what happened between 1980 and, 19, uh, and 2009? We're going to see this. But uh, it, was, it, it seems now quite reasonable that Greece was accepted as the 10th member of the European uh, communities then in 1980, because Greece in 1980 had better numbers than uh, Germany has today. The public debt was only 28% of GDP. The deficit was less than 3%. <coughs> Uh, the unemployment was 2 to, to 3%. The average growth rate for the past uh, six years after the, second oil, uh, the first oil crisis was 4.6%. The only problem was inflation, of course, because of the, of the, first, of, of, of the second oil crisis. And uh, of course, we had uh, two quite uh, important structural problems, a huge inefficient agricultural uh, sector and uh, many small enterprises. However, Greece was, again, the success story of the European Union. That is why it was accepted, but also for political reasons, so early. And then we have this. This is uh, the annual change in Greece's GDP for the past six years. As you can see, it's awful. This leads to a cumulative of, uh, of minus 25% of uh, GDP. Um, uh, this is the worst recession in modern Greek history as we can imagine. The Greek debt is the worst in the European, in the Eurozone, in, in, in Eurozone, but also in European Union. And as you all know, this led to the uh, biggest bailout uh, in the, the biggest loan in human history. 
more than $240 billion. Uh, I don't know if we got all this money. It depends on Merkel's visit, how successful it will be. But the most important thing of all is that this crisis led to misery for Greek people. This is the misery index, uh, unemployment plus inflation rate. As you can see, the misery is uh, equal to the one uh, in Spain. What happened in Greece? From 1980, from Greece being the success story, the success story in the world, to be uh, uh, to, to, to transform to the, to, the, to the black sheep of the world again. The socialist government of PASOK, of Andreas Apandreou, was happened. Andreas Apandreou was the worst kind of populist. It was a Latin American kind of populist. He, uh, he, was, uh, he was kind of, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure if, if the, the, the term is correct, a, a kind of Peronist. Uh, he was the one who literally, literally and methodically destroyed uh, Greek economy with his populist uh, measures. Most of uh, the things that I'm going to present today, it's the result of his uh, policies. But uh, uh, PASOK essentially governed Greece from 1980 to 2009. Of course, there, was, there, there were interventions by, by the conservative government. By the, but you should know that the conservative government in Greece, after the, uh, the success of PASOK, was a bad copy of PASOK, was a second socialist party. There was a competition, a fierce competition, between the two parties for spending. The, you know, that the tragic element, of course, is a Greek tragedy, so there must be a tragic, uh, tragic element, uh, element involving uh, a father and a son. His son, George Papandreou, was the one who had to, uh, to deal with it in 2009, after his, uh, re, uh, his uh, election as a prime minister. And it is, it is a tragic story, because George Papandreou uh, he had a, a, a popular, uh, um, uh, 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 won by a landslide in 2009, and he lost uh, 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 his position as prime minister without losing the parliamentary majority in two years. And now he's uh, considered in a great degree uh, uh, discredited in Greece. Let's see some numbers. Oh, no. Uh, the numbers are after this. <coughs> this years from 1981 to 2011 were years of uh, 30 years of getting subsidies from the European Union and limitless borrowing and spending with minimal structural reforms with uh, prevalent anti-market uh, bias, uh, which is still prevalent, unfortunately. Uh, the Greek state, in a point of, uh, in time, in early 90s, came to control 75% of all business assets in the country. And of course, the bloated welfare state. Uh, you can see here the road to default. From 1980, the public debt went to 28 to 89% of GDP in 10 years. So the first PASO government managed to bring uh, public debt from 28 to 89, and then to 142.8 uh, in 2009. Of course, in late uh, 2012, it was 165% because of the bailouts. The public deficit went from 3 to 15.4, and the government spending from 29% in 1980 to 53.1% of GDP in 2009. This is a graph of, uh, 
of uh, public debt as a, as a percentage of GDP from 1980 to 2011. And of course, as you might know, if you visit Greece, we are very good spenders. We, uh, this borrowed happiness, it was great for uh, while it lasted. The average per capita income reached $31,700 uh, in 2008, 25th in the world, 95% of the EU average. The private spending was, of course, a lot more because of tax evasion and shadow economy, 12% more than the European average in 2009. And the human development and quality of life, according to this indice, yeah. index, yeah, okay, uh, we were the 22nd in the world. So I'm not going to, to spend any time discussing the shadow economy. It's awful. Uh, the infamous example of uh, pools in Athens that are not uh, declared to the revenue service. The, the question here is why these 364 are, are declaring them. I mean, I, I cannot, <laughs> uh, it's very difficult to. Uh, Overregulation over in Greece, which is uh, awful. Even now, uh, deflation is an unknown phenomenon for Greece. We, we have inflation. The prices are up. We're, in, in many respects, we are, uh, the Greek prices are higher than in any other place in Europe. Can you imagine that? I mean, Greece managed to undermine the law of demand. Uh, and this is so because of this overregulation. I, I suppose that uh, this uh, presentation could be uploaded and uh, everyone could, uh, because uh, I don't have enough time. Every profession is closed in Greece, every, including my own. Um, you can see the cost of this, uh, of the closed profession and the bureaucracy. The kleptocracy, another Greek word, is the rule of the thieves. It's uh, the, uh, it's uh, a characterization that is not unfair, unfortunately, to Greece. You can see the numbers about corruption. According to Transparency International, the CPI, uh, CPI index, Greece is the most corrupted country in the European Union. Uh, and at the same time, Greek people are the more tolerant to corruption in European Union, they are more tolerant than, for example, uh, Italians or uh, Turks. And of course, Greece is not a genuine free market economy. You can see the rankings. The rankings are awful. I cannot, personally, I cannot understand how uh, awful are these rankings if we take into consideration that Greece is a member of the European Union, of Eurozone, of OECD, it's a Western country. <coughs> However, as you can see, we are in the neighborhood of uh, countries uh, in Africa. Uh, some of them have better numbers than, uh, than we do. Uh, so it's, it was not an exaggeration for Wall Street Journal to have this title as in one of uh, its uh, articles in uh, 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, 2010, that Greece hates business. Uh, and of course, this led to, to unemployment. Um, it's not a coincidence that the European countries that uh, are, you know, are characterized as pigs right now uh, have committed a rising share of GDP to social benefits over the past decade. Uh, the most, uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, illustrative example is Greece. As you can see, the government in 2009 in Greece spent nearly half of its budget on social benefits. It was more than 42. They spent, the Greek government spent uh, 10,600 uh, euros per person. 
and uh, the Greek government earned 8,300 uh, euros per person. So this leaves a 2,300 uh, euros deficit per person. This led to this bloated welfare state. Please look at these numbers because they are very, very interesting, especially because these numbers are, uh, are numbers from uh, 2004 to 2009 during a supposedly conservative uh, government. Social benefits to households came from uh, 22% to 26.4 to 2008 and 29 in 2009. Three percentage points in just one year. Half of it went to pensions. And according to a European, committee, a European Commission pension projection you know, paper, the Greek spending on pensions had a bright future, reaching 24% in 2016. Not only that, but this welfare state, this huge welfare state, was not only huge, it was totally inefficient. Um, if you can see the numbers, you can see that, that the, uh, the index, uh, the indicator for the efficiency of social benefits in alleviating poverty in Greece was the worst, of course, in Europe. 30% when the European Union average was 35%. And some Scandinavian countries are as efficient 70%, meaning, uh, spending uh, money, alleviating poverty, and be successful at this. Uh, in 2002, the indicator was a poor 4%. So one would wonder whose welfare is ensured by this huge welfare state? According to a very successful characterization by my colleagues and friends, Todoris Pelagidis and Michael Mitsopoulos, to the Greek Vikings. The Greek Vikings are uh, mostly uh, public sector union employees and uh, some professional classes like lawyers, doctors, public notaries, and pharmacists. I'm not going to discuss the conclusion. I'm out of time. Um, one should uh, not wonder why the, the bailout was unsuccessful in Greece. It was unsuccessful because uh, it was not accompanied by any kind of reform any kind of, of these reforms that are totally necessary for uh, Greece's uh, renewal and uh, real bailout. Uh, one could ask me, why? I mean, you are in, uh, in the United States, and why you are bashing your country? Uh, I'm not going to answer this question, because I'm a scholar. I'm a scholar by choice, and I'm Greek by accident. <laughs> meaning, 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 meaning by natural lottery, not uh, a bad accident. I consider myself very lucky to, to, to be Greek in that respect. Uh, however, I'm not going to, ask, to, to answer this question, not only because I'm a scholar, but because there is a great answer given some uh, uh, 200 years ago by Dionysius Solomos. Dionysius Solomos was, is the, the, the Greek national poet. According to, to Solomos, the Greek nation should learn that the, the truth is always patriotic. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Our next speaker is Pedro Schwartz from Spain. Spain, of course, is a country that uh, 
beginning in the 1990s and right up until the outbreak of crisis there, was probably living through its best moment in, in all of its history in terms of economic uh, performance, uh, political harmony, democracy was working, they weren't in civil war, and so on. And then things uh, deteriorated sharply and rapidly. But I remember when the uh, a crisis broke out in the United States and was starting to spread to, to Europe, the Spanish were still congratulating themselves that things were different in Spain. Their debt was not that high. They had great regulation over their banks that was different than in the United States and elsewhere. They were going to be spared the problems. And now, of course, Spain is it looks like is the key to whether uh, the Eurozone uh, and even the Euro pr project uh, goes down with a potential default there. Uh, Pedro Schwartz is the chairman of the Economic and Social Council of the Madrid Autonomous uh, Community. He is also a professor at the Department of Economics at the University of San Pablo in Madrid, uh, he, where he directs the Center for Political Economy and Regulation. He's the secretary of the think tank Civismo. He has worked at the research department of the Bank of Spain, uh, and he has also been a professor of economics at the Universidad Complutense in Madrid and the Universidad Autónoma of Madrid. He is the author of numerous books. Every time I'm in Madrid, I, see, I seem to find a, a new book by, by him in all the, the bookstores on a whole range of topics, not just economics, but social uh, and uh, social issues and, and philosophy and the history of economic thought as well. He, he founded the Union Liberal Party and has been a member of the Chamber of Deputies in the 1980s. Most importantly, he is also a Cato adjunct scholar. In July, when Paul Krugman decided to visit uh, Spain with his message that uh, Europe is not spending enough, uh, there, <coughs> he debated uh, Pedro Schwartz in what uh, was filmed and quickly turned into a, uh, a video on YouTube and uh, on the internet that went uh, viral. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to see it because uh, I think that uh, it was quite an invigorating and useful debate. Just Google Pedro Schwartz versus uh, Paul Krugman. Please help me welcome Pedro. Thank you very much uh, to you to be here and to the Cato Institute who have invited me. I cannot beat the drama of the previous presentation. Uh, I don't have a father and son uh, story to tell, but still things are bad enough in Spain for you to listen with great interest. Now, the, uh, in the economics professions, we have a number of people, such as me too, who use logic and deduction to come to conclusions about how the economy should be led. But also, we need to look at figures. And there are two high points in the 20th century, with two works that give us a real understanding of how history evolved. One of them, one of them is the Friedman and Schwartz monetary history of the United States, which uh, showed, I think, that you don't need an active Fed and an active Fed, due to lack of knowledge, usually makes dreadful mistakes. And I think it's happened again. And the second one is the book of Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff on, uh, uh, th this time is different, on eight centuries, no less, eight centuries of economic crisis. And I think 
there's a lot to learn there. And one of the things they tell us is how crises tend to evolve. And this helps us understand what's happening in Spain and in Europe. In Spain, we had what everybody calls a real estate bubble because uh, there was a lot of cheap money and, and uh, the value of land and housing went up and up and we built so many houses that in the end we couldn't sell. And that gave a lot of employment both to the young in Spain and also to immigrants. And so we had a very low rate of, uh, a lowish rate of unemployment. But then the real estate bubble burst in the, U in the US and that went over to Europe and it also did in Spain. And so what we had is suddenly a very large amount of debt, of domestic debt, um, because so many people had uh, been had asked for money uh, by mortgages and otherwise and development money to build houses and, uh, and then also money from abroad, money uh, foreign, foreign debt. <clears throat> then what happens in a, in a crisis like that is that you have a banking crisis because the banks cannot uh, re, uh, re get back what they've lent and the banking crisis becomes a public crisis because the state has to help banks from uh, stop them from bursting. So what the sovereign debt crisis today is that it hides a, pub a previous public, a domestic and public crisis. Now, what do um, Reinhardt and Rogoff say about the issue, how to get out, how countries get out of this sort of situation? They either default or they devalue or they inflate. In the end, they have to retrench, but default happened with Greece. I don't think it's going to happen with Spain, but it could because our, the burden of our debt is very high. We are going to get help to bear that burden, but still there could be default. Devaluation is impossible. We're in the euro, so that's it. And inflation is happening. We have high inflation now, 3.5, which is pretty high, but inflation is one that affects Spain. It's not the kind of inflation that lightens the burden of debt because the burden of debt is in euros and inflation is really happening in Spain. So inflation is not a, a way out. In the end, it has to be retrenchment, either willing or unwilling. And now we are having a very harsh retrenchment in Spain. Now, debt is expected to top no less than 90.3% of GDP in 2013. Of course, there's something uh, in that debt, there's something that we're getting a line of 100 billion euros uh, to help banks, but still 90.3 is a very high figure. It's uh, uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff who've spoken of debt intolerance. And during the journey over in the plane, I, I discovered that I made a small mistake in uh, this presentation. What we have, debt intolerance for advanced countries is getting more or less above 60%, and for developing countries, above 90%. And once you get over that, you tend to get a loss of 1% growth rate. So it's 60% for advanced countries, 90% for developing countries, and it's 90.3 for Spain in 2013. So it's going to be a tough moment. The net increase in sovereign debt in 2013 is expected to be 48 billion euros, 61.5 billion dollars. And the gross issue of public debt next year, uh, that is 
both replacement and new debt, is no less than 207.2 billion euros, and we have to, to uh, refinance that with, uh, with, a very high, with very high interest rates in the market. <clears throat> now, the retrenchment and the bubble is causing a fall in our GDP. You can see uh, the, Spanish, uh, the Spanish line is the dark red one. We're going down more quickly than Italy, but still, uh, this year we expect to, to be uh, something like minus 1.2% growth, and next year it'll be above 2%, so we are having a very, uh, very, high, very high retrenchment in the economy, which obviously means a lower tax, tax base. Now, this comes, this is the, the nearest I can come to tragedy, to Greek tragedy, and there's a tragedy of unemployment. Look at those figures. Uh, the uh, rate of unemployment is now topping 26%. And youth unemployment is now 52%. These are the latest figures. Now, of course, some of the unemployed work. It, it, there was a time when people said about Italy that uh, if the unemployed didn't work, the Republic of Italy would stop. So the unemployed do work in the black economy, but still, it's, it's, those are very high figures. And you feel them. People are getting angrier. Uh, first they were stunned, and now they are angry. And I think tensions in, social tensions in Spain are increasing. Uh, some of that uh, can be explained by regulation, because we have what is called the wedge, that is the difference between what a business pays for a new worker and what the worker gets, that wedge, is uh, made by uh, social security contributions. You have to pay 29% on top of the wage to social security contributions. And also, you have the minimum wage. The minimum wage in Spain has just been frozen, but still, it's uh, 21.38 euros a day. It's uh, in the region of $30 a day. Um, sorry, $3 a day, and it's 2.1 a day. Um, and then that makes for 641 um, euros a month. And then there's unionization. Uh, labor costs have been going up until last year. So uh, unemployment is ex uh, can be explained by, in part by regulation. Industry is depressed. You can see this, Spain is the dark uh, line. We do follow the euro line in uh, um, the retrenchment uh, reduction of industry, but still... This, again, is making for a falling tax base. The next one is one that, that, that presents a conundrum, because this is Spain's government expenditure as percentage of GDP. It went up, uh, as you can see, from 39.2% in 2000 up to 46.3% in 2009. Now it's falling. It's falling to 456 and 436 this is hard because at the same time, our GDP is falling. So it means that there's a, 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 re, a reduction of government expenditure. 43.6 is the figure I want you to remember because if we go to, uh, to selected Euro countries, that doesn't look too large because you can see Germany with 45.6 in 2011 and uh, Greece with 50.1, uh, Austria 50.5. 50 those are pretty high figures. And Portugal and Sweden, 51.3, etc. those are high figures. So why is our figure, it's growing, but still why is it 
harming us so much and increasing the spread between the Spanish debt and the uh, German Bund. Now, this is because of the amount of debt we're accumulating. Having a figure of debt of 90.3 over GDP makes uh, money very expensive to get. Now, I, have, I put here the three, uh, the, the three countries, uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the Baltic countries. They have much lower figures, Estonia 38.2, Latvia 39.1, and Lithuania 37.5. They've gone through the retrenchment. They really had a harsh medicine, and they're coming out growing. Because with Estonia, uh, you had um, a fall in 2009, a fall of 14.3 in GDP. And then it went back to growing in 10, 2.3, and now 7.9. So they really cut everything, and they took the medicine, which is something that Spain and other uh, European countries don't want to take. Uh, with uh, Latvia, uh, it was minus 18% in growth in 2009, and uh, now it's 5.5 uh, growth in 2011, and the same with Lithuania, 14.7 minus, and then 1.33. So these figures show that <coughs> those Baltic countries have taken, have bitten the bullet, which is something we don't want to do. So the spread uh, of uh, Spanish, uh, Spanish bonds, you can see there, uh, is uh, the spread is uh, up on the right and it's making new money very expensive to get and that's why we may need um, a rescue from uh, a rescue from the uh, uh, from the European Union the welfare state is partly to blame let me go quickly to the Spanish general budget now here you have uh, here you have the pie chart uh, the blue bit is in the consolidated budget of the, of the state. The uh, social security, which means unemployment plus pensions, is 40.1% 40 of our budget. And that, of course, is a huge figure. And within the 44.9 uh, red bit, you have the transfers to the autonomies for health and education. So let me have a look at how much is spent on unemployment, uh, pensions, health and education. It's no less than 63.6 of the general uh, country's budget. 63.6 uh, is what is spent on social expenditure. Um, in, on pensions, it's equivalent to 32%. On health, 15%. Education, 15.5%. But the figure to remember is 63.6, which is really unsustainable. I've given you a quick chart of how uh, expenditure on education, where, which is the, the lower line, and on, uh, and on uh, health, which is the higher line, you see it's not stopping. The growth is not stopping. Now, who is retrenching for the moment? The private sector. Most of the unemployment is coming from the private sector. And if you look at the figures of the public sector, they are not really retrenching yet. Um, here is a a uh, graph of, of credit to the public and the private sector. The public sector is above. Uh, that is the growth, in, the growth in credit to the public sector. You can see it's growing again up on the right. Some of it goes back into the private families and firms. But you can see families and firms below the zero line. And this is un not helping Spanish growth. 
then uh, our balance of payments is getting, getting back into balance, but it's because of, the, of exports by private companies and by lower um, imports by, com by companies and families. Now, the last bit I want to speak of is entitlements and democracy. This has been touched upon in our keynote uh, speech and, and others, and, uh, and I would like to put across two thoughts. The welfare state in Spain is very inefficient because health is totally free. We're now beginning to charge something for medicines that you get at the pharmacy. Uh, there's been one euro put on each, uh, on each, on each um, uh, recipe that you get. Um, the, um, on each one percent, that one euro has decreased the expenditure on medicines by 25% in the first month. So you see it's very inefficient. Uh, much of the education below university is free, totally free, and pensions are, or, uh, are not capitalized. So you have a badly working uh, welfare system. So the question is, why don't we imitate Sweden? Why don't we imitate Denmark? Because they have been able to, uh, they have been able to make it more efficient by, in the case of Sweden, giving you education checks, health checks, and, and therefore, if you do it that way, you have more competition and the welfare system works, works better. Now, this, I think, is a very dangerous idea because it forgets the, the ethical and personal effect of the welfare state on people. For example, in, in Sweden, you get a check for going to choosing a school, but you can't add any of your private money. The maximum you can spend is the check. And then I remember being in Sweden some time ago and uh, went to the Timber Foundation and met the young lady who was the head of the young conservative party. And she was Vietnamese of origin, very pretty lady and very charming. And we, we got talking and she showed me her identity card. And the identity card, she said, the number tells any Swede that I was born in Vietnam. So that's the kind of well-functioning welfare system that you have there and that are giving us as a model to get out of this muddle. And the central idea is the welfare system as we know it is fundamentally corrupt. It takes all the main decisions about our lives out of our hands and puts them in the hands of the state. We decide about holidays and how we spend, uh, how we go drinking or dancing or whatever, but we can't decide really on education, on health, and on pensions. So when people say, let's tweak the welfare state, make it more efficient, and people even say, it's a good system if it worked well. Well, what I'm, I'm putting to you is whether we should not say it's a bad system, especially when it works well. Works bad, when it works badly, everybody sees it's unsustainable. The point is not about sustainability. The point is about what it does to our democracy. And so even if we say that the welfare state is unsustainable, what we should say Thank goodness it's unsustainable at the moment because perhaps we'll try and reform it fundamentally. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pedro. Our last speaker on this panel is actually from Sweden. He is an economist, Frederick Eriksson. 
and he's the director of the European Center for International Political Economy, a think tank based in Brussels that deals with the international economic issues, and a think tank that I consider really one of the best in Europe. In 2010, the Financial Times ranked uh, Frederick Erickson as one of the Brussels' 30 most influential people. Please help me welcome Frederick. Thank you, Ian, and also thank you to Mike Tanner and to the Cato Institute for inviting me here today. Uh, but I'll, 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 what I need to do first is to, is to really compliment my, the previous speakers for his wonderful ability to detect uh, good-looking Swedish girls, good-looking Swedish ladies, uh, as you mentioned, uh, an Asian-looking uh, girl who was the chairman of the Young Conservatives a couple of years ago. I'm very glad to say that six years ago she decided to become Mrs. Ericsson, Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> I like what you had to say in the rest of the presentation as well, but I mean, I, I particularly paid attention to that part. Um, Joseph Joffe uh, mentioned in his, in his talk uh, the fears about the Eurozone blowing up. Um, I think some of the fears have uh, gone away in the past in the past weeks and the past months. I think you, the eurozone still is in, in really really deep problems. And I mentioned that on two occasions in in in, in the past, the United States had to intervene in order to rescue Europe from from blowing up. Um, it's a bit of uh, ironic then that a year ago um, you had a uh, many different uh, key political leaders traveling to Washington. Uh, with a cap in hand to ask for money, especially investments into one of those bailout structures that uh, the, the Eurozone governments had invented. And the United States said no. Um, later, they went to Beijing uh, with the same request, asking uh, kindly for, for money to be invested in the bailout funds and directly into, uh, into, into individual member states of Europe that were in deep trouble. And even Beijing. Uh, said no to that particular request. A funny side story to that part is that a couple of weeks ago, there was a big summit, EU-China summit in Brussels, and the chairman of the China Investment Corporation was giving a talk um, at, at the side event there, and we spoke at the same panels, and he, he, he basically put it like this. When I come to Europe, I look around and I see in various regions a lot of failed state-led infrastructure investment-driven projects. And I see it in particular out in the regions. I see a banking structure that is almost like a house of cards. You have invented many different sort of new institutions with acronyms that no one understands and no one really, you know, know what they really stand for. Your officials are unelected and you point your officials in all kinds of ways that the electorate doesn't understand. And you all travel to Beijing in order to get a bailout. And he ended, I feel at home here. I feel a welcome to the People's Republic of Brussels. Um, um, and one of, the, one of the great embarrassments uh, in the past years, of course, is that is, you know, the thing that is worse of traveling to Beijing to ask them for money is when they say no. Um, to that particular request. And I think the, the ironic part of the Eurozone crisis, uh, the wheel came full circle just a couple of days ago when Greece 
paid in its contributions to the European Stability Mechanism, the bailout fund, which is supposed to guarantee the survival of, of, of uh, uh, governments in, in, in the next few years to come, when countries like Spain, Italy, and others may have to request uh, support from, um, from it. Anyway, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, uh, the role of welfare, welfare state expansion uh, in, in the Eurozone crisis. The previous speakers have already uh, said uh, many things, and I'm going to try to avoid to repeat uh, all the things they ever said and I had planned to say. What I would like to start with is that there exists a profound uh, you know, differences in the opinion in Europe about the nature of, of, of the Eurozone crisis, what it's all about. Uh, we have a systemic crisis in the sense that we have an existential threat to the survival of the Eurozone, and, and a lot of people on the markets ask themselves about the, the capacity of the Eurozone to survive, the Euro as a currency to survive. We have an institutional and political crisis with a profound divergence between member states about the right course of, of, of treatment of the economic problems that we have. In addition to that, I would say that we perhaps are not suffering so much from a sovereign debt crisis as much as we are suffering from a crisis of the sovereign. In the sense, having, uh, uh, and I speak as a libertarian now, having a small but very strong state with the capacity to do what it's supposed to do. What we see in Europe is almost a collapse of, of the state as a function uh, with a remarkable incapacity to actually do anything about the problems that we are seeing. And I think this problem, you can find this problem in individual member states in Europe as well as at the Eurozone at large. We also have a monetary crisis, um, a monetary crisis in the sense that uh, the currency union has uh, not worked as it was planned to do. And we have seen a profound economic divergence in Europe in the last sense, which in, in, the, last, in the last years would have put enormous pressures on, uh, on, on, on the system's um, compatibility and the, cap the capacity to, to basically hold the system together. In addition to that, and here I'm, I'm perhaps going to take a slightly different view than some of the previous speakers, I'm you know, a free benite by heart, and what we're seeing in large parts of the Eurozone right now is a monetary, a passive monetary contraction is almost of the kind that the United States experienced in the, 19, in the 1930s. We are reliving that sort, of, uh, that sort of problems when money supply in the economy is sharply dropping, not because the, uh, the central bank isn't pumping up money, but because the uh, private money creation has almost collapsed because of, of problems um, uh, at the fiscal side as well as problems on the financial markets. And I think this is a huge problem. So this, these are the, the more overall systemic crises that we're going through right now. In addition to that, we have individual countries uh, in, in deep crises. And we have seen um, a couple of explanations for that. We have the credit cycle crisis, the boom and bust that we uh, experienced uh, in, in, uh, during the noughties when, um, uh, you know, on the back of cheap money, uh, uh, we saw asset bubbles being built up, especially in those countries that are in, in, in difficulties right now. And when these bubbles were popped, uh, countries went into an almost Fisherian type of debt deflation cycle, uh, to some extent also with, with uh, Minsky-like type of characters. And that period is going to take some time to, uh, 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 to peter out. It's going to take time before the economy is going to be adjust to the, uh, the post-crisis situation. We also have uh, uh, countries that, uh, before the crisis, had a large 
had large fiscal deficits, countries like Greece and Portugal. Greece, I think, uh, recorded uh, a fiscal deficit during the noughties in the region of 5.7-5.8%, and this was during the good times. Portugal had an average fiscal deficit through the noughties, or through up to 2007-2008, uh, on 3.8%. Uh, other countries like Spain and Ireland uh, didn't have uh, uh, a long-running problems with uh, the fiscal balance in the economy. They actually had fiscal surpluses uh, for many years in, in, during, during the 2000s um, and, and managed to bring down public debt levels as well. Um, in addition to the, to the debt and deficit problems, we have people also pointing, of course, to the current account crisis, the fact that we have had uh, a slowdown in competitiveness in, in some of the peripheral economies and uh, it's difficult to uh, adjust uh, that sort of, of, of falling, falling relative competitiveness when you are in, in a monetary union with highly competitive economies. And if you put all these explanations together, you, you get basically to a scenario where you have two competing type of ideas about why Europe is in crisis and what should we do about it. On the first hand, you have a Keynesian style type of explanation, which is uh, pointing to uh, pointing to the uh, the effects of of a broken credit uh, cycle or a broken credit system, um, and it requires a lot of fiscal expansion in order to avoid that the contraction is going to be uh, be permanent. Um, uh, on the other hand, you have uh, an almost mythological uh, uh, story about a Germanic type of of of. Uh, of view, which is based on, on austerity and especially on bringing the fiscal uh, deficit to, to zero to introduce fiscal balance. And these are also some of the demands that we haven't seen coming from, from Germany, the northern economies, plus uh, Brussels institution as well as towards those economies that have been running huge fiscal deficits. The problem I have with this uh, uh, dichotomy between these two competing stories about why Europe ended up in a crisis and what we should do about it is that it neglects the fact that very rapid expansion of the welfare state was part of the story why Europe ended up in crisis. And if you don't deal with that, with the expansionary effects of the welfare states, uh, we are not going to be able to recover economies uh, uh, to the degree that we should. So for instance, if you have a, a strong austerity type of policy which leads countries to increase taxes enormously on productive economic forces, you may have a positive effect on the fiscal balance in the short term, but you can, you can also be sure that you are going to slow down potential economic growth in your economy. You're going to prolong uh, the economic decline. And this is what we're seeing in Europe right now, that many, many governments, uh, they are cutting um, expenditures, but many of them are also resorting to uh, rapid increases of taxes on productive economic forces. Spain is, is one country which is doing that. We just saw the other week where uh, the, the Portuguese uh, government had to embarrass itself uh, because it couldn't get through um, some expenditure cuts in the economy, so it, it decided to increase taxes uh, instead, uh, leading to, uh, and, and this was acknowledged by the Minister of Finance itself, that, that these increases in tax are actually going to prolong the pain that, that we are in. 
So let's look at this, uh, the, the welfare story, uh, the welfare state story of, of the crisis. This is a, a slide which I've called Paul, Paul Krugman's favorite slide, but because what it basically shows is what the gentleman from, from the EU delegation here in Washington previously said in, in, during question time, uh, is that the higher the uh, government expenditures of GDP, the higher the welfare state of GDP, the better you have, have uh, lived through the crisis. Um, so accumulated GDP growth between 2008 and 2011 was actually higher in those countries that have, have bigger welfare states uh, when you measure it in, in relation to, to GDP. Now, this, of course, is a very phony story, and it, it, it simply isn't true because um, uh, it, it, look, it looks basically at, at, at the wrong sides of, of, of welfare states expansion, and it, it, it doesn't really get down to the, uh, to the dynamics here. Uh, there has been a lot of references to my mother country, Sweden, which, of course, uh, remains a very large welfare state, but it's also uh, a welfare state uh, where the uh, ratio of government expenditure to GDP uh, in the past four years during a, a very tough economic crisis have been cut by 6% units. Um, so it's a country which has, you know, much higher taxes than you have here in the United States, but it's an, it's an economy which has also reformed itself enormously. And as we also heard from Joseph Joffe initially, when, when you look at small, homogenous Protestant countries up in the north that always have been export-reliant, um, uh, you can see that the dynamics of rapid expansion of the welfare state is going to be different there than what it's going to be in other in other in other parts of the world that don't doesn't that don't share uh, those particular characteristics. So, what I think we need to look at here, uh, um, uh, and and what is being shown on this slide is is going looking at how the welfare state or how government expenditures expanded in, uh, during the bubble years uh, in, in the early part of the noughties up to 2007. And as you can see from this slide, the nominal growth of government expenditures in this period rose remarkably in, in, uh, in some of those countries that are in deep trouble right now. Uh, in, not so much in Portugal, uh, um, it, it, it rose uh, 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 much less than it did in, 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 in Spain, Greece, and, and particularly uh, Ireland. Um, if you're going to compare uh, this development of, or this trend of very rapid uh, expansion of government expansions with previous episodes in history when countries like Sweden and other big welfare states uh, expanded the welfare state, you're not going to find you're not going to find any episode which is comparable to this one. Even even during those periods when inflation was very high in, 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 in Europe. Um, if you look at a country like Sweden, uh, uh, for uh, the welfare state to increase uh, 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 with the trend that it did in Spain and Greece, it would have, would have taken us 12, 13 years to do that uh, during those episodes in, in Sweden's welfare state history when it expanded as, as the most. And when it expanded, it also expanded on the back of huge uh, current account surpluses, which was basically that these economies exported very much to the other parts of the world, and on, on the back of, of current account revenues, they could uh, increase, increase domestic consumption. What we saw in these economies, of course, was that they had huge current account deficits. They had to lend money to finance consumption. Now, what this story doesn't uh, tell you is uh, 
going to the microdynamics of the welfare state expansion as well and, and trying to figure out what role it played for the crisis. And I want to point to two particular things. The first one is that you had a huge expansion of what I call the infrastructure state in many of the peripheral economies, especially Ireland, uh, Spain, but even in, even in Greece, where uh, state-led infrastructure investments uh, exploded. I mean, you, had, you have so many uh, bridges to nowhere in, in those countries that it's almost unimaginable. Um, uh, huge capital waste in the sense that you, you, you built you know, new airports, new railroads, new hospitals that where capital utility could never uh, add up to the degree that was necessary in order for these investments to, to really make any sense. Uh, but these investments themselves helped to create the asset bubble, the, the housing bubbles or the property bubbles in these, uh, these economies. Because it, it helped to in, you know, inflate asset prices overall, and especially housing prices, property prices. In addition to that, it, it, it led to an enormous expansion of the construction sector. Um, and when, when the bubble was popped, what happened, of course, was that uh, that, that uh, uh, all this new economic growth that had been generated in the economy, all that gold was turned into sand. And when that uh, gold was turned into sand, they still had those uh, higher permanent levels of, of, GDP, of, of government expenditures. And that, uh, and that uh, basically, even, you know, even in countries like Spain, which uh, had a fiscal surplus uh, when it entered the crisis, all this rapidly turned in, uh, and very quickly into... Uh, into um, structural fiscal deficits of a kind which, which are very difficult to deal with when you're going through uh, a debt deflation scenario. So my, my story here then is, 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 is pretty, uh, pretty uh, simple, if not simplistic, uh, that when you look through most of the financial crises or most of the housing asset bubble crises in Europe that we've had in the past 20, 30 years, you will always find that rapid expansion of the welfare state, rapid expansion of the government is part of the story. And, and nominal expansion at the level of nominal GDP growth will, when the, the, the bubbles are being popped, will lead into huge structural deficiencies in the economy with high permanent levels of welfare states that you then need to start to cut. And if you don't cut them, you're going to end up in long-term problems. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frederick. I would like to take questions, but I'm afraid that uh, because we're running so far behind, we're gonna, I'm going to have to encourage you to speak to our, our speakers in the reception during the break. In the meantime, please join me in thanking them for their presentation. Thank you.